Charles Noe. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 525. Jason Lingren is with me and first time guest Rudolph Wynand, who is a sound therapist and a musician, is going to join us. We're going to talk about sound, which is foundational to our world. And I don't think most people think of sound in that way, but I think that's beginning to change. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And another hot good morning. And Rudy, welcome to the uh, podcast. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me in. Can you tell folks where they can either contact you, find your work, or just the information to get a hold of you online? Yeah, the easiest way, I think, is just to go visit my webpage, which is thetuningfork.life. Okay. What we will do is the day this goes live, we'll send you an email. Do you have an account at Crow 777 Radio? No. Okay. So what you'll need to do is send me an email. I will open you an account. And under every episode, when you're logged in, there are comments, and we will put that link in comments, although I suspect Rose has probably already stashed it away. Anyhow, uh, anything you want to say, Jason, before we get in here? No, let's do this. So, Rudy, we've kind of reached a new era here where people are beginning to think differently about the world around them. And for years now, I have pushed the importance of what I call cymatics as foundational to our existence. So let's start in on your bullet points. From your point of view, what is sound? Yeah, sound, I think it's very easy to define. Sound is what we perceive with our ears. And what is that? Well, it's uh, frequencies that range between about 20 and 20,000 repetitions per second or vibrations per second. So there's frequencies that are below that range of our uh, hearable perception and frequencies that are above it, and we call them infrasound or ultrasound, or we call them maybe beats, or we call them cycles. But what we hear with our ears, that's what we call sound. In the modern era, with all the high-tech tools we have, we have, when we go into the animal kingdom as an example, there are people out there studying like whale song and and just how far it can travel. But uh, I saw a thing, interestingly enough, on elephants And they use a very low frequency that we can't even really detect with our ears to go over long, long distances. And we're just now getting back into the idea of what vibration is. I mean, at the end of the day, sound is vibration, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a very interesting point because, for example, the elephants, they perceive these very low vibrations through sensitivity captures on their feet. And so they can transmit information throughout miles, uh, transmitting vibration through stamping on the ground. And it's frequencies between three and eight hertz, more or less, which is super low. Um, and on the other hand, you get, for example, dolphins that can uh, perceive uh, frequencies of up to 150,000 hertz, um, which is far beyond our hearing range. Still, it's frequency. Still, there is a vibration And still, there is a lot in nature that is going on outside of our hearable frequency range. It's almost like, you know, you think about the animals in the ocean communicating with those frequencies and the distances. There was already a worldwide communication web long before we made our first radio. Some of the distances are are extraordinary. As a matter of fact, when I was in the military, I talked to a guy who was a submariner, which from my point of view must be the toughest job in the world. I can't imagine being stuck in a tin can down, but he told me they would unwind an antenna that was something like a mile long for the super, super duper low frequency. 
and they would get distances that are incredible. And yet we have those elephants on dry land exactly. that have been using the, the super low frequency forever. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. And like, uh, it's, it's very interesting to see how our human existence is conditioned and biased by our way of perceiving reality, by the hardware we've got in our body installed. In this case, talking about the ears, well, we have got a certain frequency range that we can perceive with our ears. And that's how we are biased to perceive just a little portion of the reality of frequencies that exist out there. We are far out from the reality that dolphins perceive with their ears. Or elephants. So I think it is a very, very important point where we can start to understand a lot of what is going on in the world and, and our position as human beings is that our biological hardware is making us perceive just a little portion of reality. And we're biased by that. Now, the good thing is we have got machines and measuring tools that enable us to notice and realize and register that there are frequencies far beyond our hearable range. And that's really, really amazing that we can use other abilities, intellectual abilities that we've got to widen and broaden our perception through machines or microscopes. You know. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. If folks go online and do a search, an image search for the visible spectrum of light within the spectrum, you'll see what it's, it's just like our ears. We, you know, I'm going to tie it all back around here in a second to some ancient ideas that don't really see a difference. Like we say light, we say sound, we say there are older ways of thinking about this, which pretty much show it's all vibration. Yeah. But if you go look at the visible spectrum, it's this tiny little sliver. And like when I was doing my telescope work and I finally got full spectrum tools, it goes to show you how biased we are because we see what we see and we don't give any credence to all this visual or audible stuff that we can't detect. But to pull it back around, I was studying the yuga change and there is an idea that we're coming into an energy era, which fits perfectly with where we are because the energy being cited is electricity. And as we know, everything in our world is electrical now. But they say part of this emergent energy era is that there are five subtle energies and we will master them in this age. But what's interesting about it is they say the five subtle energies are proven by the by five human senses, which is an interesting way to think about it. Because when we think about, say, I smell something or I hear something or I see something in the West, we think those are vastly different ideas. But in this older way of thinking about it, it's basically all vibration. Exactly. It's just a different velocity of frequencies. And we're just biased by our senses to perceive a certain range, as you said, like the visible spectra is a very small range in the billions of hertz and the billions of repetitions per second, which normally is measured in nanometers. So the wavelength of the light is measured and the wavelength can be transduced or translated into uh, the velocity of the wave. So we've got also the, the hertz frequency, which would be like uh, billions of hertz between 400 billion and 750 billion or so, more or less, is the visible frequency range of light. And beyond that, we've got ultraviolet, we've got infrared, we've got a whole bunch of light spectra 
that we cannot perceive with our eyes. In change, for example, a butterfly well sees infrared spectra without any trouble. You know, it, it's interesting too, when you hear the definition, and part of the problem here is this is probably in very ancient Hindu, so it's been translated. And as we all know, when you translate, you you can lose meaning, but they yeah. refer to the, the five subtle energies as five subtle electricities. So they equate all that vibrational as electricities. In other words, they really do see no difference. The, the way I started to think about it, when, when my thinking about what we're talking about changed, I read kind of a cheeky little thing that basically said the only difference between concrete and a marshmallow is vibration rate. And that's what got me. <laughs> that's what got me thinking, you know, because when you that really brings it, brings it to the point, I guess. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, it's crazy. And, you know, Jason is an audio engineer. Actually, were you doing audio before we went digital, Jason? I learned in a 16-track, half-inch tape studio. Beautiful. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting because when you visualize with the digital tools, you're pretty much only interested, I think, with what we can detect with our ears, right? So there's a big difference between analog and digital. And when you're talking about what you can perceive and can't perceive, this is a big argument with digital. Analog tape will take anything you can throw at it up until you start overloading the machine itself, the tape mm. itself. It can only take so much. And then what they call driving it into the red. And if you do that a little bit, sometimes it actually can produce a pleasant distortion until it gets too far. With digital, it can only listen so far. And any frequencies above that are chopped off. So there's this argument about what sample rate do you really need? Because storage is always an issue with digital. And how do those frequencies that are above human hearing, do those still interact with the lower frequencies? And I personally feel that, yes, they must, because there's this thing called harmonics and how things build on each other. Absolutely agree. But what is the sample rate, though? What, what, define the sample rate. So there's two things in digital. There's bit rate, which is how many ones and zeros are being processed at a time. And then there's sample rate, which is how many times a second that a waveform is being listened to by the computer. So a, a compact disc is 16 bits, 44.1 thousand kilohertz. So 44.1 thousand times a second, the analog to digital converter is listening to that waveform. And that was chosen because the human hearing is supposed to be around 20,000-ish. People vary mm -hmm. a little bit and it gets worse as you get older. So they had to double that to make sure that all that information was getting in there. However, in modern times, you can get 48,000, 96,000, 192. You could even get up to 384, but those files start getting massive. I personally, when I record music, I recorded at 96,000, even though it eats up a lot more space and uses more processing power. Because yeah. I can hear a difference. When I've A-beat it back to a 44.1 file, I think that it's, it's interacting. And some people say, oh, you're just blowing smoke up your butt. But no, nah, I'm pretty sure it's there. You know, for me, it has a big similarity and it makes it for me very easy to understand what you're saying. I perfectly know that, but maybe for people that don't know about sound and music and recording and stuff, what can help a lot is the image of the movies. So the movies, we have a standard like 24 frames a second. And why is there 24 still pictures in a second? And when we look at 24 still pictures passing by in a second, we make up, the brain makes up this smooth movement out of it. 
So if you have only two frames a second, then you see this tuck, 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 like you start to see the still frames. And if you want to have a very, very, very uh, high definition image, so you use whatever, 48 frames a second, and then you have got a much higher uh, visual flow. And the same thing happens with the audio. If you have, like with the digital audio, if you have too little bits of audio to less bits of audio, then you start hearing this this fluffy, uh, dirty sound that the MP3 files often have, this dirty sound, because there's just information missing. And the analog, it's not bits of information, but it's just a constant, uninterrupted information flow without bits. So that's obviously for me also, I totally agree with you, Jason, um, the highest quality of being able to reproduce, a re to record and reproduce a recorded sound or music. Definitely, yeah. Could we actually draw a line? Could we think, so Jason defined a sample rate in kilohertz, I think, uh, 44 being the base. Mm -hmm. So my mind being what it is, I'm already looking at like the occult meaning of those numbers in my mind, besides the infinity idea or the stability idea. But could we equate in video, you just referenced the old cinema quality video, 24 frames per second. Could that be considered the sample rate? If we were considering what Jason said about kilohertz, and you're talking about video, uh, is there any parallel between capturing video at so many frames a second? Is there any parallel there? Yeah, I would say yes. Uh, Jason, what do you think? Maybe I didn't say it very well. So you're instead of sampling sound that we hear, and you've said that's in kilohertz, we're sampling what we can see, but the base is we're going to make 24 still images and let your brain put the rest together. Is that a sample rate for our eyes? Yeah, technically, because you can shoot in higher frame rates as well, and it gives it a, the Sorry. image a different appearance. Standard film going back decades is 24 frames per second, and when you run those together, the blur is enough there to give it what they call it motion blurry. It gives it a realistic look. But you can start, like, for instance, uh, video games often run at much higher frame rates. Yeah. If the frame rate's too low, it'll look jagged. You'll see that often if you have a computer and you're trying to play a video game and the video card can't keep up, it'll start stuttering and it won't be able to draw the picture of what the, they call the refresh rate. It won't be able to draw enough pictures per second for it to look smooth to you. So it's that kind of idea. What's interesting about the digital age and how we got video, my first gig out of school, I ended up being a video guy and making some of the very first, remember those banner ads that used to be all over the internet? I made some of the very first video ads. So you got this little video window that's the size of a postage stamp, the high end of the frame rate, and we're jamming it down a phone line, by the way. Um, so we're, we're trying to force video into a world that doesn't have the infrastructure to deal with it. So the high frame rate is 12 frames. The low frame rate, I think it was three. Not even kidding you here. And that still wouldn't do it. My point is, it's the only time in history I can recall when a new invention is implemented. Typically, a new invention is, wow, we got this thing. Look at all this help we get from this thing. It was the other way around. With the digital era it was we want this thing we don't know what the hell to do with it so video we're just going to ruin video until we can get it down the pipe it got so bad that i would actually take the color palette of a video and i would force it so that there was no true black and no true right white to reduce it my point being is when the digital age came on it was all about ruining it as little as you could but you were ruining it 
to get it delivered. And this brings in the points that that you put in your uh, your list here that people argue about endlessly, and that is Hertz. From my point of view, I'll just lay my point of view. Everyone knows what I feel about Hertz. First of all, I don't think we should use the moniker Hertz. Words have meaning. We used to call it cycles per second. That perfectly well describes and lets a mind know what we're actually talking about. And Hertz is also a parallel with the word of damaging someone to hurt them. Don't like it, even though I know it's a dude's name. Also, in, in it's an allegory also in German. Uh, the her, das Herz, the Hertz is the heart. Oh, wow. Is it spelled the yeah. same way? Uh, no, without the T. It's H H E R Z. Well, I'm with you, man. Sounds yeah. like often is like, but and here we heads. are. Yeah. It's spelled, so you, you pronounce it the same way, actually, yeah, in German. Well, if that was in English, I'd be all over it. If it sounds like to me, I make the assumption that it is like, and I work from there to either prove myself wrong or find something. But where I'm headed here is to the 432, so-called Hertz, against 440. Now, there's endless arguments. The first time Jason and I did an episode on this, I was getting contacted by piano tuners that were pissed off. I've got 40 years <laughs> tuning piano. You don't know your butt from a hole in the ground. And I held my ground because I know what I know. And whether or not it's as big a deal as I say it is, that can be argued to the end of time. But if you take a cymatic imprint on a round plate of 432 so-called hertz, and then you do 440, there is a visible difference. The 432 has more detail, more clean definition to the geometry. When you go to 440, it muddies out the image. And to me, that is a perfect representation of the difference. So you added 432 and 440. Let's get into it. What's your point of view about Great. the, oh my the endless argument? Let's see how far we get down this this Hertz rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> People will argue. Oh my God! Yeah, it's been it's been also for me on my musical journey and throughout the last let's say 20, 25 years that I'm on this journey of exploring frequencies and sound and and you know retuning the body and whatever and using sound as a therapeutic means. It has been something that is always with me and that I have studied a lot and. For me, there are a few very, very basic uh, references that are really interesting for me and in my way of perceiving the world and my work and music and sound, okay? So one of the things with the 440 hertz is that if we measure the spectral frequencies, the spectral lines of the hydrogen atom, you get a spectrometer. And you can measure these spectral lines, which are very thin black lines between the different color spectra of the infrared and the ultraviolet spectrum of light. Okay. So you gasify the substance. In this case, you get hydrogen and you uh, shine a white light through it and through a prisma. And on the other side, you can, it, it spreads out uh, the spectra of the different colors. And between the spectra, there are, these little white, uh, little black lines that are called spectral lines, and they vibrate, and you can measure them, the velocity in which they vibrate. Okay, so um, this is how they define uh, what substance something is. For example, when the police stops you and they do a, a substance check, they have got a little spectrometer in their car, and they just put the substance in there. In two minutes, they, they know exactly what substance they found in the car. 
because of the spectral lines being like a fingerprint of each atom and molecule and of the different substances. So hydrogen atom, there are different series of these spectral lines in the hydrogen atom in different ranges of the ultraviolet and infrared and also in the visible light spectrum. But the alpha spectral line of the Balmer series, it's called Balmer series, one of the series of the uh, spectral lines. So the, the prominent one, the most prominent spectral line vibrates at 656 nanometers which would be uh, 207.67 hertz. And that corresponds exactly to a chromatic G-sharp with the reference key of 440 hertz. I'm sorry, G-sharp? G-sharp or C-sharp? G, G-sharp. Okay, G, as in girl. Like geometry, yeah. Okay, got it. So every time we listen to a song that is playing a G-sharp, in the modern era, because all of the synthesizers and pianos and guitars and everything normally standardized is tuned to 440 hertz. So every time we listen to a song that is tuned in G-sharp or has the tone of G-sharp in it, we will be listening to the vibration of the most prominent spectral line of the hydrogen atom. And hydrogen is the most common atom in all of what we can observe in this observable existence of ours and in the universe. So I think it's quite interesting. So just for example, Queen, another one bites the dust. Nirvana, smells like teen spirit. Pharrell Williams, happy. Metallica, for whom the bell tolls. You know, that's all songs that are in a scale of G-sharp and they've got a lot of G-sharps in there. So we over and over and over again are exposed to a frequency that has a direct relationship with the most basic building block of our physical existence, which is the hydrogen atom. And that's very interesting. Wow, wow, wow wait a minute. Hold, hold on. Before you go on, that's, uh, that's, I've never even considered what you're saying. So basically what you're saying is the hertz rate and in the scales that are used in the music is correlating to an elemental reality proven true by nature. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, go ahead. Nobody talks about it. And most of the people that defend the 432 hertz or that are very, you know, um, myself as well, I also tend to say, you know, I prefer 432 than 440. We usually tend to not really want to look into positive things for the 440, you know. But when I discovered that, I was looking into all the frequency analysis of the hydrogen atom and the work of Hans Kusto will get there also. And I sent to you actually the, the whole list of all the spectral frequencies of the hydrogen atom and everything and all the math behind it. So you can really take your time and look through it. But this one thing is just really interesting for me, you know, because it suddenly it debunks a lot of paranoia and things, you know, like, oh, the 440 is like the devil's frequency and whatever. And the Nazis made it up to make us all bunkers. It debunks it a little bit, you know, it just takes out a little bit of wind of the sails and let me relax and say, okay, I can listen to my songs that I love anyway, because they're great songs. And I know that when the G-sharp sounds, that that's a sound that has a relationship with the basic and fundamental building block of my biological existence, which is my body, the planet I live on, whatever, the air that I breathe and the food that I eat and digest, you know, so that's amazing. So let's take a minute to talk about it. I know Jason's going to have a point of view on 432, 
I know that he records mostly in 432. Like me, he tunes his instruments in 432. But from my point of view, there is a proven difference between 432 and 440. Is it the devil? No. No, it's absolutely not the devil. Right. If I want to try to illustrate why 440 was implemented, it could have been and many other frequencies. It's a tool. Yeah. Now, what is music? What does music do? At its base, it elicits emotion, right? Right. At its base, the person who created that music, which will elicit some emotion, some emotional response of some kind, is putting their intention. Yeah. So basically with music, you're embedding intention to elicit emotion. Right. For me, a lot of the modern music is on a 440 platform, much more effective at eliciting the emotion. That's the way that I would describe it. So let's go. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Let's go in a circle here. Jason, what is 440 the devil? What's your view between? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think it's the devil, but I definitely notice a difference and the way it makes me feel. And I'll even notice sometimes if my guitar is out, like if it, uh, it's, this is Louisiana, so the humidity messes with guitars very quickly. Yeah. And if something doesn't sound right, I'll be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm definitely not, not where I want to be. And I'll knock it back into a 4-3-2. I can tell that there's, uh, especially if, it's, if you're A-Bing it, it's noticeable. Yeah. So I think there's a feel to it more than anything because it's only eight cycles a second. So it's only eight cents difference. So yeah. it's not a massive difference, but I personally do feel that, yeah, that there's something that reflects in you uh, differently when you hear the music. 440 is punchier. So let me ask you the question. Hold on, Jason. If I took ACDC or Black Sabbath or Metallica, which are very high energy in your face bands, and I played it at 440 and I played it at 432, would some of the emotional impact be lost in your view if it was played back in 432 as opposed to 440? Yeah, a little bit. Now, don't forget there's a lot of other stuff going on. So there's still going to be punchy drums and a bass guitar. Like all those kinds of things are still going to be going on. And the pace of the song is still going to be the same for the most part. But overall, like if you played the riffs back and forth, then you might hear a bigger difference or it might reflect on you differently. I notice it the most when I'm doing open chords and things like that. So Rudy is 440 the devil. What's your view of the implementation between 432 and 440? Describe it in a way that that makes sense to the average non-musician. Yeah. So for me and in my experience, one of the main differences that music tuned to 440 generally tends to have more tension than the 432. And sometimes, because I always, you know, I tune to 442 or to other planetary frequencies and stuff, and I usually don't tune to 440 ever, any of my instruments. But when I try to get like a certain tension, like for example, I go to a friend's studio and he's got his normal piano tuned to 440 and I'm playing around on there and I see like, oh, this is a nice melody. Oh, I like the tension that it creates. And then I go home and try to reproduce that melody on 432 hertz, and it just doesn't make the same tension. It just doesn't build up the same way. So 
I think that that is a very important point that in our times, obviously building up more tension maybe is not the most efficient way of growing and going ahead, you know, because we have got too much tension everywhere in our daily lives anyway, emotional tension, mental tension, and, and social tension and political tension. There's like too much tension, electrical tension, you know, there's tension all over the place all the time. And we need to be able to relax and to calm down our systems. So that's how I think that 432 is like at our times, maybe more important or more relevant than 440 actually, because it helps us to like get out of this constant building up of tensions. I think that's my perception of it. So it's, it sounds to me like you and I have a similar point of view and, and you use the word tension, which the way I think about it fits perfectly. And so what I find is I think 440 was a tool implemented in and of itself. It's not hurting you. It's not evil. It's a frequency from nature, basically. But what it does do is allows an intent of whoever creates whatever you're going to listen to, to, I like your word, put more tension, emotional edge into the music. And here's an interesting idea. If you go read almost any account of people going to higher spiritual plateaus, enlightenment, almost all, actually always what you find is the human condition becomes less and less and less emotional. In other words, the picture painted is a very high recognized spiritual master of some kind is going to be far less emotional than the average man or woman on the street. So everyone can Draw that bridge right back to 440 now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, totally agree. Yeah, yeah. Those were my ideas about it. And I think it's important because people people get carried away. Oh, my God, 440, it's evil. It's the devil. You know, sorry that I interrupt. You know, I think that tension is not bad at all. And if you think of, the, of our physical existence, if you think of how atoms and different level of uh, vibrational energy densifies and comes together to build up in a molecular uh, structure and build up a physical existence, it needs a lot of tension to do that. So without tension, there is no physical body, there is no human experience, there is no planet, there is no uh, me being angry and being able to hit the wall and have my hand hurting and say, what the fuck, this hurts, man. Without tension, these experiences are all impossible. So tension is absolutely necessary also for in order to live what we are living, you know. The duality to get growth, you got to do good and you got to do bad. I'm I'm with you 100%. Another point that I'll make before we move on from 440, the occult idea of the number four or the number 44, this plays into it too. This, This pushes people or can push people into getting a mindset that 440 is somehow the devil's tuning fork, which it is not. And the reason is because mainstream media for years now has used the idea of 44 as death stores or using the number four as death. But anyway, see, and this is the, the whole idea of what we just said about 44. Someone can embed their intent. Well, this is what the media is doing in an occult way. They're embedding their negative intention into a number that I can pick up any day of the week and I can say absolutely true things like four is the stablest. It represents stability. 
which is proven in nature by a square. I can also show you that the angles of a square are the angles of sorrow, but I can also show you that that is part of the natural duality. And so I just get all this on the table so that hopefully when people think about these basic foundational frequencies for music in our time, it's a more measured response because truly people go off the rails. Matter of fact, I'll be surprised if I don't don't get emails right now (laughs) telling me a hundred different ways why I just got it wrong right now. Exactly. I, I, I totally agree. Will we move on to 432? Because there's a lot of very interesting stuff there. Let's do it. So one of the interesting things is that the Schumann resonance is around eight hertz. It's it moves up and down, you know, but it's around seven, eight, seven point eight five, or you know, around eight hertz. And eight is a multiple of four, three, two, like 55, 54 times eight is four hundred and thirty-two. So that's interesting. There's a correlation. That's, that's a nine, and four, three, two sums to nine. That is interesting. It's a nine exactly. Yeah. And there are a lot of nines. Let me see if I can just quickly open up this table that I've got here. So if you have got uh, the digits of a mile unit and you have got the Earth's diameter, which is uh, 7,920. All right. So you're, you're drawing basically just to set the table. What's about to be done here is mainstream data drawn. And we may get into the idea of orbits or, you know, other things, axial precession of the earth. These are drawn from, from what textbooks will tell you is true. Okay, go ahead. Exactly, exactly. So the earth's diameter would be 7,920 miles, which in the end sums up to nine. The moon's diameter should be 2,160 miles, which also sums up to nine. The sun's diameter uh, 8,640 miles also sums up to nine. The Earth's and the Moon's diameter together also sum up nine. The distance between the Earth and the Moon also sums up nine. And for example, the beds of the mala of the, the mantra chanting, like uh, mala, it's called in the Buddhist tradition, it had 108 pearls, which also sums up to nine. And the period of the moon, which is around 27 days, well, the day also sum up to nine and the duration of a pregnancy, which also is nine months in this case. So nine, it's just, it was just like to draw a quick parallel to all the numbers that in the end uh, sum up to nine over and over again. And nine is just such an important number in our reality and what we're living, you know. So let's, let's address it for a second. This is the way I view what you just said. For me, nine means completion, among other things, among many other things. And there are other people that would argue 10 for me. And and in a way, I I see that too. But to me, 10 is the rollover to a new cycle. And one is also God. There's all these occult meanings that have been assigned. Now, nine for me is completion. Now, if someone was going to take and misinform us all, let's say they're going to say the earth is this and they're going to misinform us or the distances to things. If the real information summed to nine, wouldn't it be interesting if the false information pervade also summed to nine, if people follow where I'm going here and they know why I'm saying what I'm saying, because I don't accept that NASA has told us the truth about the distance of the sun or anything else. But here we're getting in to the occult manipulation. In other words, if I was going to tell you a lie 
And that lie broke down to a numerical value of nine. And the truth that I didn't get told also broke down to a numerical value of nine. I'm just pointing this out. It's almost like subconsciously, there's an advantage that the lie may be accepted more readily, I guess. Exactly. And I I make it easier for the lie to be accepted and uh, it's easier to make it appear as true. Right. Exactly. And by the way, any old age ideas that come from seemingly centuries and centuries ago, if not millennia ago, you will always see the age changes some to nine. Again, underscoring completion. And I don't think we really need to put on the table, but I will. Tesla's famous statement that if you want to know how this place works or something amazing, you don't know Jack until you understand three, six, and nine. Yeah. So go ahead, carry on. Right. Okay. So let's go back to where we went off uh, in this direction, which was the four, three, two, which sums nine. But for me, the most important thing for me as a musician and for my work, what I do is that if I uh, tune my reference A of a standard tuner instead of 440 to 432 hertz, and then I tune a instrument to a C sharp, to chromatic C sharp of that A in 432, then I get exactly one of the octave analog frequencies of the orbit of the Earth. And that's interesting for me. That's the interesting part, because that's how I can use a chromatic standard tuner to tune a instrument or a string or a flute or whatever instrument or a synthesizer um, to be in a, to vibrate at a frequency that has a harmonic relationship to how the earth moves in its orbit around the sun, if, you know, stating that uh, or, or... Using the mainstream model, which are driving numbers, which can actually be measured. Exactly. Just remember this. I don't want to pull you off the 432, but when you get done with the 432, I want to come back around to the Schumann, okay? Okay, great. Okay. So that's really interesting. And culturally, for example, in India, uh, Ravi Shankar, one of the great, great sitar players, he also stated like the sitar should be tuned to a C sharp that is a little bit lower than the Western one. And if you measure old recordings uh, from uh, sacral sitar music from India, from central or South India, you find that it's tuned to a C-sharp that's around 136 hertz, which would have a reference A of 432 hertz. So that's also interesting that in India, this C-sharp, which is the orbit of the Earth, our year cycles, all of their sacral music and a lot of their traditional temple music is tuned to that frequency. And you see how the, like, you cannot say like uh, uh, to put everyone or a whole culture into one pot. But if you look at India and India's culture, one one of the very interesting aspects to them um, or to that culture is that they're super sweet. They're, they're very much living through the heart and a lot of their spiritual uh, training and work and development is all obtained through the heart and through everything that's like uh, related to the heart, not only the physical heart, but like the spiritual heart. Um, And this is the C-sharp that vibrates at 136 hertz, which is the same frequency as the orbit around the sun uh, of the earth. And for me, for example, you look at trees and you have got the rings of the trees that mark 
the traveling around the sun because, you know, in winter they grow slower than in summer. And that's what marks the rings in a tree, more or less, let's say. Um, and trees are super calm, beautiful, nice, calm beings. You know, you sit down and look to look at the tree for four hours, just observe it. And you start to just feel calm and happy. And, you know, it's just you start to nod your head and say, oh, this is so nice. And it's just, you know, it, it sounds maybe weird, but I think you know, you understand what I'm trying to state here, you know, to also see correlations between cultures that use mainly a certain sound frequency to tune their instruments to throughout the ages and how their culture evolves and how it's, you know, what are the basic characteristics also of, of certain cultures. And there's definitely a correlation for me to that's visible here. So basically what they're doing is they're anchoring their artistic endeavors in a thing we call music to a truth that nature proves. The way you chose to describe it is the orbit of the earth. Another way to say that is the duration of a year. Right. In other yeah. words, there's a direct correlation to what nature proves is true, regardless, completely regardless of how someone described it whether they said this is a spinning ball in an orbit or whether they simply said a year is this long, that number will be derived. Right. Exactly. That's the point. Thank you so much for, for pointing that out. Yeah. And in, in other words, India was never lost that there is no lie in nature. And by the way, I think this is important because if we can find old traditions like in India, where we know they were tuning to a certain frequency, then we have a basis to try to get back to the truth in nature that it was based on. And that also pulls us forward to 440. So 440, what, what, what truth in nature is that based on? Or is that someone's arbitrary? Did they have a different anchoring mechanism? Was their idea, I want to be able to do things, or was their idea, this number represents this truth in nature, where I think you did a good job of showing 432 can be anchored to physical truth of the duration of a year right it also can be anchored to the uh, biological basis of our body and this is really interesting for me and it is i i look at this over and over again and it over and over again blows my mind so we have got a nervous system in our body and the nervous system at rest has all the nervous cells, they have a resting potential, and we have got this electrical tension in our nervous system all the time. And at rest, we more or less have around 70 millivolts of electrical negative charge, which is the resting potential of our nervous cells. Then there comes a strong electrical impulse, and there is where the synapses happen, where the signal is sent. But the resting potential... When the nervous system is addressed, it's more or less 70 millivolts, okay? And a nervous cell, to maintain that electrical tension, it has an inner space of the cell and the surrounding outer space of the cell. And there is a little membrane that separates the inner from the outer space of a cell. And on that membrane, there is the so-called uh, sodium-potassium pump or ATPase which interchange sodium and potassium ions. So it enters, puts into the cell potassium ions and takes out sodium ions all the time. And when it's at rest, 
it introduces 136 potassium ions into the cell every second and takes out 207 sodium ions towards the outside. So there's two things that are crucial for me. One is that at resting, when our nervous system is at rest, then it introduces 136 potassium ions into the cell, into the nervous cell every second. 136 hertz or repetitions per second is the 32nd octave of the time the earth takes to fly around the sun. So there is a harmonic relationship of how our nervous system works in a molecular state and level, a harmonic relationship to how the earth moves around the sun as well. And it's measurable. And not only that, but also in order to maintain that 70 millivolts of negative charge, they need to take out the sodium ions, which are 207 per second. And the interval, the difference between 136 and 207 is exactly the musical fifth. And the musical fifth is always a resting point in music. And it's a very harmonic interval. So that's very, very interesting and very basic for me to, to uh, wrap our head around that there is really um, a relationship of how our body works on a cellular level, on a nervous level, and how the earth moves or how time passes throughout the years and how we relate to it. And the old saying, what is in big is in small, what is up is down, what is out is in, you know, and suddenly it becomes tangible because you can look at it in numbers and say, oh my God, it's the same frequency. The earth moves around the sun, takes its time, 32 octaves higher, my nervous system works in exactly the same frequency. Which is interesting because you're on the cusp of the 33. And again, I will state one last time before we wrap up this hour, that whether you choose to describe it as a book would, that this is an orbit of some kind, what is basically being said, it's a temporal, right? It's a temporal measure, right? It's time. It, it's, it's a year. It's a third of a year. It's, you know, one thirty-second of a year, however you want to get to it. But we're coming up on the top of the hour, Rudy. Can you tell folks again where they can find you and your work? And then we're going to take a break and prep up for hour two. Great. So yeah, uh, the easiest way to find me would be to go to thetuningfork.life. All right. I'm going to wrap up hour one of episode 525. But when we come back, I'm going to bring up, I'm going to come back on the Schumann idea. Does everyone, does everyone remember after 9-11, there was like this mainstream thing where, oh, these scientists were measuring the magnetic field and it went up after 9-11. And as Rudy was talking, he spoke up about a thing that we know is true, or the Schumann, it varies, the Schumann resonance. Is it possible, and we'll talk about this in hour two, is it possible that our minds, what we think, our emotions, what we do with our minds is a contributing factor to the so-called resonance of the earth? With that, I'm going to bring hour one to a close. We're going to prep up to do hour two. The first hour is free to everybody at pro777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full two-hour episode. They also have access to all the forums, to comments under every episode, and free access on the site to the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon that covers all my telescope work to include Lunar Waves and The Double Sun, first filmed in 2015, which I believe is going to be a big deal 
in the coming year or two. And with that, I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. And I hope to see you on the other side for hour two. There it is, man. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing.